Hello, welcome to In The Loop, a podcast by Texas Guadalupe. My name is David Spittler, and today I'm joined by our guest, Tom Marjkusik. Uh, Tom has a very uh, long and impressive resume coming into this. He has worked at a number of um, uh, rocketry and aerospace uh, sectors within his time, first public and then going into pretty much every private rocketry company that there is, uh, before eventually founding his own company, Firefly. Uh, which we are currently at their facility today. Uh, they were very generous to let us come here and talk to them. Uh, Tom, it's great to have you here. Thanks. Glad to join. Yeah, so where we like to normally talk about first, um, just on our podcast, is kind of what first got you interested within the rocketry space um, and just kind of what, uh, you know, what motivates you in that respect. Yeah, I was really interested in, in rockets and airplanes and things as a, as a child, as, as hobbies. And... Um, after finishing high school, it came time to go to college. It was just very natural that I wanted to go and learn more about these things. So I went into aerospace engineering um, and eventually honed in on advanced space propulsion as something that I thought I could really be passionate about and engaged in. So I went to school all the way through a PhD to uh, become an expert in plasma physics and um, how you would use plasma um, as a new means for allowing humans to more efficiently move ab about the solar system and then uh, hopefully eventually uh, outside the solar system. Mm -hmm. So I know you weren't too interested within traditional liquid rockets uh, yeah. when you first started your career. What kind of changed your outlook on that? The thing that changed my outlook was that I realized that if we were going to do any of the cool, new, advanced things in space, the first thing we needed to figure out was how to get to space in the first place more efficiently. And the only way to do that realistically is with the old fire-breathing rockets that have been around for half a century. Um, but even though that technology had been around a long time, no one had really figured out how to make it economical and readily accessible. So around 2000, there was a whole movement that became New Space where uh, .com entrepreneurs are teaming up with knowledgeable aerospace professionals and really trying to solve that problem. How do we get to space economically in the first place? And then once we can do that, we can go back to all the cool stuff I was working on, the, the Star Trek stuff to, to, to go even further. So for the last 15 years, I've really just been immersed in, in trying to help solve the space access problem, which naturally means uh, figuring out how to make conventional rocket technology work more effectively, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, that's what I've been done at all. I, I did all the companies I worked for in the past and what we initially did with Firefly. Uh, having said that, Firefly uh, is starting to move into more of that in-space type of architecture that I talked about. Uh, the Blue Ghost Lander behind us is an example, but we have another vehicle called the Space Utility Vehicle, and that Space Utility Vehicle uses plasma propulsion. So finally going back to my roots and starting to pick back up uh, with that more advanced modern technology that will allow us to do even more ambitious things. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the space utility vehicle is and what kind of goal for that is through Firefly? So sort of as the name suggests, the space utility vehicle or SUV is sort of the Swiss army knife of space transport. So. Space transport can be broken up into roughly three phases, the, from Earth to space, uh, movement around in space, and then landing on uh, other planetary bodies. So our Alpha rocket gets you to space, our Blue Ghost 
lander, allows you to land on the moon. And in between, we have this SUV vehicle, which is sort of like a space taxi, where um, it can rendezvous with satellites, move them to a different location, drop them off, go pick up the next customer, uh, repeat and rinse. Or it can do other uh, advanced things like perform services for the vehicle while it's there. So for example, it could refuel it, it could install new batteries, it could do, do a variety of, of utility missions. So it's, uh, as I said, it's just a very multifunctional platform that can do transport or other services in space. Mm -hmm. Space debris is kind of a growing concern within low Earth, or low Earth orbit. Um, and I've kind of heard a couple of different um, perspectives on what some solutions to that would be. Uh, we had Morba Jaw on our podcast once, who is a, a pretty um, well-known astrodynamicist. So does the SUV kind of work in that space as well? Or I've heard some kind of interesting space debris solutions on your end before. You yeah, want to elaborate yeah on those? the SUV will work really well in that application. So everything we're putting up there eventually uh, reaches the end of its useful life and becomes, uh, it goes from being a, a valuable data transmission or data collection access to a dangerous piece of space junk whirling around at 18,000 miles per hour around the Earth. So um, if you were able to put satellites in a low enough orbit, the natural drag from the small amount of, of uh, atmosphere that's there eventually brings them down fairly rapidly, you know, within a few months. So what we can do with the SUV is we can take satellites from low Earth orbit and deliver them to higher orbits. And while we're at the higher orbit, we can go over and grab a uh, satellite that has reached the end of its useful life and bring it back down to the lower orbit where it can naturally decay and re-enter and, and no longer be a problem. So the SUV can work on the way up and help up with the space debris issue on the way back down as it's doing its ferrying. That's awesome. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to backtrack a little bit uh, and talk a little bit more about kind of your lead up to founding Firefly Space Systems. Um, so you'd worked at a variety of private space companies, had very successful careers at all of them. What kind of was the moment that you realized that you need to found your own company? I think two factors played into it. Um, uh, the first was that we'd had great success at the first new space company I'd worked at, SpaceX. We'd had changed the paradigm of space access. We'd, we'd achieved that goal of lowering the cost of access and increasing the frequency of access to space. Um, and, it, and at the end of my tenure there, I realized, um, hey, there need to be more SpaceX's in the world. This needs to be about a movement, not just about one company. Um, so that was one motivation. The other motivation was the recognition that the payloads themselves had actually changed while we were developing this, this new space access paradigm. So uh, satellites um, had experienced what computers had experienced sort of, with, if you heard of Moore's Law, they, they more power, smaller package, lower cost, um, uh, as opposed to in the past where satellites have been very large and very costly and very massive. So the idea that we just needed to be able to build bigger and bigger rockets for bigger and bigger satellites was really out of sync with what was going on with the satellites themselves and that they were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. So I saw a niche and a need for a new space vehicle that would serve that, that growing small satellite community better. It wasn't about just building bigger rockets, it was about building a smaller launch vehicle that more ideally uh, suited the, the way the satellites were going. So those two factors, uh, there needed to be another transformative company uh, in, in, the, in the launch vehicle business, 
and there uh, needed to be a smaller launch vehicle to service the emerging satellite market were the two things that really drove me to say, hey, um, I need to go out and, and start my own company, which became Firefly. Mm -hmm. A number of uh, other companies have kind of seen that niche uh, yeah. in need of small sat launchers. Yeah. Uh, Rocket Lab, Astra, Relativity. There's a number of growing companies within this field. Do you think that there's a carrying capacity within what that market can take? And how do you see Firefly's role in that? Yeah, well, our Firefly's role is to come up with all the smart ideas that everyone else can copy. So generally, mm -hmm. yes, you, <laughs> if you have a good idea, uh, uh, then other people are going to copy it. And, and it's also very validating because... There's also another phrase that you know shows show me show me a um, a, a market that, that that doesn't have competitors and I'll show you a market that doesn't have customers. So um, you know it's validating that these other companies are coming up, and generally they're always one step behind us. So if you look at Alpha, it's a one metric ton capacity launch vehicle. Uh, Relativity and uh, ABL copied that, and they're a few years behind us. So we, you know we're the first to attempt to launch a vehicle that size. Um, and so we also see a need for things like the space utility vehicle and then a medium class launcher and medium class SUVs. So you'll see us moving on in the development of those vehicles and behind us, I think you'll see other companies coming up. But um, my job is to make sure we always stay one step ahead mm -hmm. uh, to continue to come up with the good ideas, but also to make sure we're the first to market, which gives us uh, uh, certain economic and business advantages. For sure. I know that the SUV is kind of uh, more of an interesting idea and something that hasn't been done as much so far. Do you all see Firefly as uh, kind of like the leader in that space right now? Um, or where, are you, where is that kind of at? Yeah, I, the SUV uses a, a lot of technology that's been demonstrated before. So we're kind of uniquely packaging uh, technologies that have been used before. So um, the way we envision you doing, using the SUV, for example, doing these ferrying missions and having it be a satellite servicing platform and do uh, spooky things for the military, uh, uh, the kind of the range of missions that it will do will be unique uh, and it will be the first vehicle you know, of, of its kind. But certainly it's a good idea and there are people, um, other companies that are that are talking about doing similar things, and, and there will be similar things. And so, again, our goal is to, to, to stay one step ahead with you know, what we see as being needed in the future. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting in front of this kind of magnificent piece of machinery mm -hmm. behind us here. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about Blue Ghost, kind of what the goal of it is, um, yeah. and what the timeline is for uh, Blue Ghost mission? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is that there's a big business imperative to do something like Big Blue Ghost. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I was at SpaceX, we had the Falcon rockets, but, but we also had the Dragon capsule. And the Dragon capsule serviced NASA's commercial resupply services missions, or C CRS missions. Um, those were high revenue missions that are very seriously augmented the launch vehicle business that we we're, were trying to build. So when I started Firefly, so we got to try to follow that same model. While we're building the launch vehicle, we have to find high revenue opportunities to provide cargo services to NASA. And that's what Blue Ghost is. It's um, uh, you know 15 years outside of what we were doing at SpaceX. Now the cargo missions are not to station. Well, there continue to be missions to station, but the new opportunity is to deliver cargos and, and, and science to the moon. Um, so that's what we're doing with Blue Ghost. Um, so 
it's a really our pathfinder into that whole high revenue spacecraft area. And a lot of the technologies that are on Blue Ghost um, are also on the SUV, so there's a lot of great synergy be between the two. Mm -hmm. Does this have a designated mission, or is it something that can be more uh, modular and changed out for? Yeah, it's very versatile. Um, so on the first mission, it's carrying uh, science experiments. On the, the second mission, we hope that it will carry a group of rovers that it will drop off and, and allow them to go out and explore. That's awesome. So within kind of the NASA commercial um, perspective that you were talking about there, uh, I know NASA is now looking at kind of taking that same model of um, the commercial um, resupply and crew and move that over into um, what is eventually going to be commercial destinations and um, deorbiting the ISS. So uh, just as a space um, you know, fan, I guess, where do you see that? What are some of your thoughts on that? You know, that's an area, uh, honestly, I'm not, I'm not too um, well-read on the whole space station business. Mm -hmm. um, I believe just yesterday, Blue Origin announced a space station. I haven't been able to, to look at the details, but um, it's a really interesting modular approach where they're creating sort of a central core capability with, you know, power, water, toilets, <laughs> um, and different commercial entities can bring in their module and dock in sort of an Lego fashion, build up this, this um, space station that's not predefined as to what it will be. So I think that's a super interesting idea. Uh, but exactly the timing of that and, and how the transition will happen and whether uh, the, the life of the station will be extended again, um, those are TBD things and things I'm not super well read on. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really focused on the space transportation part of it. And if those things come to pass, um, it'll be certainly will help us from a business perspective because there'll be lots of missions to ferry cargo back and forth to those sorts of commercial stations. Absolutely. Would you help to go to a commercial station yourself one day? No, I'm not so interested in that. I think uh -huh. there are, uh, you know, it's uh, different people have different passions for things. Like I said, I started off with this passion to figure out how to actually extend our reach into the solar system and eventually the galaxy. So um, I want to focus on the transportation part of it and not the destination part of it so much. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people that have great ideas about building up Martian colonies or lunar colonies and things like that. Uh, but we really want to be the kind of space trucking yeah. <laughs> line that, that, that services those destinations. FedEx of space? <laughs> yeah, FedEx of space, if you will, yes. All right. So usually I have a co-host with me. Uh, yep. Sadly, he wasn't able to make it today. Okay. Um, but one thing that he's super interested in, and I know something that you like to talk about as well, is aerospikes. Um, mm -hmm. I know you talked about it a little bit with Everyday Astronaut in a recent yeah. interview you did with him. Uh, could you maybe explain uh, for people that don't know what an aerospike is, uh, what Firefly was originally hoping to do with that, and um, yeah, just kind of give me the spiel. Yeah, so a, a rocket engine is, in principle, it converts the thermal energy or the hot of a hot gas into directed kinetic energy, and by Newton's third law, we get action reaction and the rocket moves. Okay, so the way we um, accelerate that hot gas is through a nozzle, a converging diverging nozzle, typically. So the gas starts stagnant, increases in speed, and then goes supersonic in, in a nozzle. Now, that's a typical way it's done, and that's an internal expansion of this hot gas. Another way to do it 
is to externally expand the, the gas. So instead of having a nozzle, we exhaust into the atmosphere, and then we have some surface that the hot gas can interact with that's still attached to, to the vehicle, um, and that's called an, generally an aerospike. So the hot gas comes out, it starts to expand, it hits this aerospike surface, pushes on the surface, and the you know, rocket goes the other direction. So some of the benefits of it are that it, it works really well in the atmosphere because the atmosphere sort of forms a virtual other side of a nozzle. So you have a solid part of the rocket on one side and on the other side you have the atmosphere itself that's kind of uh, constraining and, and, and collimating the gas. Um, and it turns out that be, because uh, of that interaction, um, the, the rocket can kind of self-regulate as it goes up in the atmosphere. As the atmosphere becomes thinner and thinner and thinner, uh, there's this sort of self-regulating feature that the aerospike does. So the aerospike is, is really good for atmospheric applications. It's probably really dumb for doing in space um, because you don't have that atmospheric in interaction. Um, let's see, what else can I say about it? Um, it turns out that for technical reasons that I described in an everyday astronaut interview, it, I think it's ideally suited for uh, pressure-fed rockets or... And this is where I think it will show up again and maybe even show up with me and if, All I, right. <laughs> if I'm blessed and fortunate enough to do it, is to put it on a rocket plane. It's really well suited to go on an aircraft like uh, geometry um, for the altitude compensation reasons I suggested before, but also on an airplane you have to like land and, you're com you know, and take off. So there's always this rotating aspect. You're t rolling, rotating and taking off, landing, you're coming in at an angle of attack. And if you have a big rocket nozzle hanging off the back of your airplane, you could have tail strike issues. Mm -hmm. So the aerospike is very compact and can allow you to, to do those, those, those uh, rotation maneuvers adjacent to the ground and, and not have those sort of uh, tail strike issues. So the altitude and compensation effect, the tail strike issues, and there's also some potentially some, some interesting ways to integrate an aerospike into what's called a rocket-based combined cycle engine that is a hybrid air-breathing uh, and conventional rocket en engine. So uh, maybe someday I get to do something, something like that. Mm -hmm. That's where it might show up again. I know rocket planes are kind of see, you know, single stage to orbit, a little bit of a holy grail in some respects in the, in the space industry. Um, is the industry anywhere close or are we, we got a little while to wait? There are people working on, they don't have to be single stage to orbit. You can, you can carry a second stage in a payload bay get to a certain altitude, open the payload bay, and, and then eject this, uh, an expendable second stage. Um, the, there's a company called Skylon in UK, I think, that's working on them. We have a concept for a, a vehicle called Gamma that um, eventually we may be able to work on. But um, it's, it really, what it really comes down to is it's, uh, it's going to be super expensive to develop something like that. For us to do it at Firefly, we'd probably need about at least $500 million of just development money before mm -hmm. any money makes a dime. We'd have to spend about half a billion dollars to get it fully working. Um, so there's that sort of barrier to entry when um, you can you know, build more conventional rocket technology for a lot lower cost and start generating revenue, it makes sense. But once you have a revenue generating company, um, it becomes possible. And if you look again, like at SpaceX, they're able to 
to use the revenue they're generating to go do <coughs> new projects like uh, Starship or Starlink, um, and perhaps a company like Firefly. When we're you know generating a billion dollars of revenue a year, we can set aside you know hundred million dollars a year or something like that to go and do a project like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be definitely yeah. super exciting. Because it would be. Tra- it's all about again lowering the costs and increasing access. And uh, when you think about like how many airports there are in the world versus how many you know launch sites are in the world, there's a dramatic <laughs> difference. So if we can move toward like aircraft-like operations for access to space, that would be very different than what we experience today. And like going to these Air Force bases or you know Cape Canaveral or whatever for these. Uh, uh, to do the things we've been doing, frankly, since the 1950s, same mm-hmm. approach. Yeah, speaking of these bases, I know y'all recently had a launch out of Vandenberg, uh, first Firefly launch, which is an impressive accomplishment by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that first launch, I guess, compare to first launches you've seen in the past in the industry, and where do you see you know a second launch coming up? Yeah, so no new company with a new rocket has ever gotten to orbit. And Firefly has kept the the record alive, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I, I think our first launch was was pretty 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 typical. I mean, the people that are doing all this stuff are smart and and, and uh, you know are gonna have uh, partially successful missions on the first flight. So uh, I think we met expectations. Um, uh, I don't think we exceeded expectations. Um, so, you know, increasingly with subsequent launches, there's more and more pressure to nail it. And I think the second launch, we, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't get to orbit. I didn't see any reason why we shouldn't get to orbit on the first flight. And it was really just a silly problem with one of the uh, electrical connectors on one of the engines that, that made us not successful. So barring any more silly, unforeseen things, uh, we should be fully capable of getting to orbit on this next launch, which hopefully will be January 31st. That's awesome. So I guess, is there a, a, I guess, probability of success that y'all have for each um, launch, and what is it from first to second launch? Yeah, I think, again, since no one's been successful, if you just take an objective view, yeah. and forget about it, you know, everything I know, um, you know, it typically takes about three launches for a, a uh, new company to do it. At SpaceX, it took us four launches. Mm-hmm. Um, Rocket Lab, I think, was more was successful on their second or third launch. I, on average, I think it's that you really expect 100% that third launch to be su- successful. Now, as I said, I think we can we can be successful on our second flight. Our, the, the downside of our first flight is that we didn't get stage separation. We didn't get to, to fly our second stage and understand what was going on with it. So there's still a lot of unknowns that we didn't demonstrate on the first flight that we will demonstrate on the second flight. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% confident we'll get to stage separation. We'll get the second stage going. But, you know, there is still a potential that there's some things we don't know about the second stage that we'll learn on the second flight and have, and, and have to roll into third flight to, to fully get to orbit. Mm-hmm. And then what is currently kind of the, the time between? So I know y'all, you said, what was the date again for the second launch? January 31st. January 31st. So have y'all already started building Alpha 3 and Alpha 4 and yes, yes. so on? Yeah, so we plan to launch uh, five rockets next year. So... Uh, January, late spring, 
uh, early summer, uh, I think early fall, winter. I, I don't know what that adds up to, but basically well, after January 31st, we'll do four more launches. Uh, and the fourth one is, is really interesting because that's our first NASA payload. Mm -hmm. so, so NASA satellites um, doing some really interesting, complex mission. Um, and that should be around the June time frame. Gotcha. Flight four. That's going to be really exciting. Yeah. So I guess then within that, um, I know I have a couple more questions that I want to ask you. One's kind of more of a fun one, and then the other is, uh, I guess, more of a broad question. Uh, the first one, though, uh, I've heard that you've driven a car that might now be in space. <laughs> um, how, I guess, what is, um, tell me a little bit about that, and then how do you, you know, is that something that you, uh, uh, a fun fact that you like to tell or anything like that? Not many people can say that. <laughs> yeah, I, so I work, as I said, I worked for, for SpaceX. Um, Elon had his original Tesla Roadster, and uh, I remember asking him if I could take it out and drive it around Los Angeles one day, and I did. And, uh, and I'd heard that that's the, the one that they launched on, uh, on that first launch of the Falcon Heavy. That was the same car. Uh, so if that's true, then yeah, <laughs> I drove a car that, that, that's, in, that's in space. So that's the story behind that. All right, that's which is, awesome. Which is interesting, you know. I really, I think it's very cool. When I, I was in Germany when that launch happened, and Falcon Heavy is giant, you know, multi-hundred million dollar vehicle, and, and on top of it is a car. And I was with these Germans, and they're like, this makes no sense. What, of what scientific value is this? And I'm like, it just occurred to me, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm American because they just don't get it. It's, it's these, there's something uniquely American about doing things just because we can. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we launched a, a car with a, you know, astronaut in it and played David Bowie music and sent it to Mars orbit because we can. And it's a statement, it's a very uniquely American thing that as individuals, we can do whatever the hell we want to do you know, if we put our minds to it. We're not constrained by the will of big governments or, or, or big companies. And I think it has a really deep and profound meaning that is just lost on people that don't live in an environment where they have that kind of liberty. Mm -hmm. I guess another Go question. America. <laughs> Go America, USA. <laughs> Um, within that, and uh, I know originally um, Firefly was based in Hawthorne, California, made the move to Cedar Park um, and Austin, Texas, hook them everyone. Um, but I guess what, what was appealing about Austin and what made that, um, you know, the place that you saw Firefly growing? Yeah, so in our journey together, and I say our because my wife's been on this journey with me since the beginning, you know, we've been together since high school, uh, had four babies in four different states, uh, babies in, during graduate, multiple graduate schools. And <laughs> so uh, in short, we've been all around the country and not only academic part, but working for all those companies. And one of my jobs was to direct SpaceX's uh, Texas test site in McGregor, Texas. I was there for several years. I worked all around the country and it was just clear to me, if you're gonna start your own company and do this kind of thing, Texas has the right regulatory environment, the right economic environment, and in fact, the right climate environment to do this sort of thing. So um, one of the hardest parts of doing a company like this is getting employees to come and do it. And often it's, it's 
it's pretty straightforward to get the engineer excited about this sort of stuff. But usually with the engineer, there's a really competent, capable, and, and talented uh, spouse that comes along. And so you have to sell. The, really, the, the hardest part is selling it to the spouse, not to, <laughs> not to the employee. And if you're trying to sell like the Mojave Desert, uh, it's kind of a hard sell. Uh, but if you're trying to sell Austin, it's, 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 a lot, it's a lot easier because the spouse can find cool things to do here as well. Um, so that's a big factor. But in, in developing these sorts of technologies, you need to have uh, an office environment where you're doing engineering. You need to have manufacturing facilities. And very importantly, you have to have test capability to test rocket engines and such. And the Austin area is fairly unique in that you can be in this metropolitan environment access to a world-class university like UT, um, but then go 25 miles outside of town and basically do whatever the hell you want to do. It's mm -hmm. Texas, it's your land. You want to blow up rocket engines, go for it, you know? And so it's, it's really uh, the perfect environment to do this kind of thing for, for those reasons. What is your kind of uh, take on, you know, having like a good close uh, connection with like a big education system like UT here? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, one of the most important things Firefly can do is educate the next generation uh, in this s sort of uh, work. You know, space is a 21st century occupation. Um, I, again, going back to our, the strength of our country, I think it's super important to create industries that create uh, great jobs and, and uh, create technology that always allows America to kind of be on the leading edge. So. Um, being uh, close to a world-class university like UT gives us an opportunity to uh, work with students and give them the practical sort of training that you just can't get in a university environment. It, it you know, it uh, augments and, and complements the, the formal training that you do in, in, in books and in the classroom. Um, it also provides benefits for Firefly to have um, students here as interns working with us. Uh, you know, we definitely benefit from, from that as well. Um, uh, I think it also benefits our employees to interact with students. You know, we do our um, rocket curriculum where we go in and we, and we teach on various subjects related to rockets, and it's just a really good opportunity for, for our employees to, to go and interact with students like that and, and, to, and to share their knowledge. So my um, ultimate hope and, and Part of planting this seed with, with, with Trell was that uh, it would catalyze Austin to become the sort of Silicon Valley of space, that the sort of um, environment that evolved around Stanford and Silicon Valley for information technology would evolve around Austin in the same manner for space and, and, and space technology. And, you know, with, uh, with you know, Elon coming to, to Austin initially, at least with Tesla, I don't think it'll be long before SpaceX will be on the heels of that, and we'll see more and more uh, growth in this area in, in, in Austin. And so this will become the epicenter of the cool place to work on space-related things. Uh, we were here first, so uh, it's definitely gratifying, and it's also just uh, encouraging about the future. Yeah, I think Texas has a lot of really strong rocketry growth and, a, of course, a 
very storied history as well. Um, but I, I'm kind of interested you talk about the American culture, you talk about Austin, UT. Uh, what would you define as like the firefly culture? Yeah, so um, the culture is the people and the kind of the, the attributes that I really look for and people are, as I say, uh, smart and wild at heart. So people that have invested in their education, that know their stuff, but also are just sort of fearless. And not in a reckless way, but just in a, um, a spirited way that, that wants to create something new, that wants to, to create something um, transformative, uh, profitable. You know, hey, mm -hmm. if, if we can do all this cool stuff and all get rich along the <laughs> way and, and have lots of great vacations in the Riviera, why not? Works even better. Yeah, it works even better. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's it. You know, the technology that we work on will, will be cool no matter what it is in particular. But, you know, if we're really advancing the state of the art, if we're really profitable, and if we're really having a lot of fun along the way, mm -hmm. I mean, what could be better in, in life? So, you know, that's the kind of culture we're trying to create. For sure. I know you're an extremely busy man. I'm sure you had to skip about five <laughs> meetings even just to give us the time today, which we really appreciate. Yeah. I do have one more question yeah. that we like to ask all um, kind of our, our space industry um, guests, which is why do you think going to space is important? Why do I think going to space is important? I think going to space is important because it's in my heart. And I, I think it's what God built me to do. And um, that's good enough for me. Absolutely. <laughs> that's so great. Tom, thank you so much for the time that you gave us today. It was great having you. Um, everyone, we're going to end this episode. Thank you so much for watching.